0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll discuss everyday people making history.
1: I thought about all of the ordinary people that I call the little people that participated and made the movement work.
0: We'll look at how railroads
2: impacted the development of our state. It was the only way that Florida's agricultural supplies, phosphate, uh, lumber, citrus, how that got out of the state and how people came into the state. And we'll talk about early horse racing in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
0: The archive at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa includes thousands of rare and out-of-print books, maps dating back to the 1500s, more than 12,000 postcards, historic photographs, and original documents. You can find information about governors, generals, and influential community leaders, but also told are the stories of fishermen and farmers and other everyday people who make Florida history happen. Florida author, activist, and folklorist Stetson Kennedy was a champion of everyday people, documenting their stories and fighting for their rights. Born in Jacksonville in 1916, Kennedy died in St. Augustine in 2011. Stetson Kennedy's career began in 1937 when he joined the WPA's Florida Writers Project. At the age of 21, he was named head of the Unit on Folklore, Oral History, and Socio-Ethnic Studies.
3: Well, it was the Great Depression for one thing, and I didn't have a job along with tens of millions of other Americans. And uh, at the same time, President Roosevelt had organized something called the Federal Writers Project. And I thought this would be an opportunity for a 21-year-old to start a writing career. So I signed up for the Florida Writers Project, and in a short time they did uh, elevate me to that position. I was wearing three hats. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, as a matter of fact, was uh, my, I was her boss. She was not an easy one to boss, I can tell you. She fortunately worked out of her home in Eatonville, and I was in Jacksonville. So it was like that.
0: Zora Neale Hurston was an important Florida writer, folklorist, and anthropologist whose work was greatly influenced by growing up in Edenville, the oldest incorporated municipality in the United States entirely governed by African Americans. It was Hurston's lack of emphasis on racial difficulties that inspired Stetson Kennedy to make the issue a focal point of his work. From 1937 to 1942, Stetson Kennedy lugged around a large recorder to capture the oral histories, tall tales, and folk songs of a diverse group of everyday Floridians, from cracker cowboys to Greek sponge divers to Latin cigar rollers and African-American turpentine still workers.
3: Actually, it was a precursor to the uh, a wire recorder came uh, next uh, before the tape recorder, and this recorder was like a, a coffee table except it took two or three good men to lift it when we wanted to go out on the railroad tracks or on the pogey fishing boats. Uh, we had to get some manpower, and it was uh, on the tracks it was powered by two automobile batteries. So that's, that's what we had to work with. I called it the thing.
0: The recordings that Stetson Kennedy collected in the cities, towns, and rural backwoods of Florida from Pensacola to Key West led to the classic 1942 book Palmetto Country, an important social history of Florida. As a pioneer of oral history, Kennedy was pleased to see how the field advanced in the final decades of his life.
3: I'm a great believer in oral history because uh, I call it the dictatorship of the the footnote. The the academicians uh, are quoting each other instead of uh, going out and getting first-hand primary source material. And oral history, of course, is a participant and a witness, at least. And uh, they're, they're seeing it with all their sensory organs. And for that reason, it has more validity from my point of view.
0: Some historians argue that oral histories are sometimes less reliable than more traditional research sources because people's memories are not always accurate. Kennedy believed that the best history comes from the recollections of everyday people.
3: It's uh, uh, being there and uh, telling history from the bottom up is, of course, history. It's the little man that makes history and not the generals. And uh, so I like to hear from the little man.
0: Folk musician Woody Guthrie, best known for the song This Land Is Your Land, was a big fan of Stetson Kennedy's work. Guthrie spent many of his last years living in Stetson Kennedy's house in Beluthahatchee
3: Park. I recall Guthrie saying at one time, uh, Stetson's not exactly a folklorist, he's a Poe-focused, by which he meant, uh, I suppose, a champion of the poor, uh, one of the folk, and not writing from, from some other point of view. It was Stetson Kennedy's
0: infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan and other white supremacist groups that earned him national and international recognition. Using the name John Perkins, Kennedy was able to secretly gather information that helped lead to the incarceration of a number of domestic terrorists. These experiences led to the 1954 book I Rode with the Klan, which was later republished as The Klan Unmasked.
3: I spent a lot of time in front of the mirror, you know, practicing the N-word and things like that. Uh, I didn't really have the face for it. In fact, I almost got killed. Uh, An interviewer came down from New York And I cautioned him about, you know, uh, blowing my cover. But he goes back and writes about this intense young man with a poet's face. And that almost got me killed. (laughs) There weren't that many of them in the Klan.
0: As racial tensions were rising in the United States in the 1950s, Kennedy was having difficulty getting his books exposing bigotry published. The French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, best known for the play No Exit, published Kennedy's book The Jim Crow Guide in Paris in 1956.
3: When I went overseas some years later, I thought I'd get away from my nightmares, you know, being caught. But in Paris, it was raining frequently, and the French traffic cops wore white rubber raincoats with capes and hoods. And their hand signals were very much like the Klan signals. So I kept on having nightmares.
0: Although he never forgot his roots as a native Floridian, born in Jacksonville on October 9, 1916, Stetson Kennedy did choose to live abroad for about a decade.
3: Well, McCarthy was going on. Uh, Eisenhower was president, and he was, as presidents go, he wasn't all that bad. But there was McCarthy. And, um, you no, know, I went over to testify about slave labor, Uh, in the United States uh, before the United Nations in Geneva. And uh, I went with a one-way ticket and $8 left over. So I pretty much obliged to stay until I could... (laughs) And it took me eight years, so to speak, to raise the round trip home. Harry T.
0: Moore was an educator and civil rights activist who founded the Progressive Voters League, registering tens of thousands of African-American voters in Florida. He was a statewide leader of the NAACP and fought for equal treatment for African Americans in the justice system. Before he was killed when a bomb exploded under his home on Christmas night, 1951, Harry T. Moore endorsed Stetson Kennedy's campaign for the U.S. Senate.
3: I had announced for the United States Senate as an independent, colorblind uh, candidate for total equality. This is 1950 when uh, you know took a lot less than that to get you killed. And Moore's organization of of black Floridian voters uh, called a meeting and invited the Democratic and Republican candidates and me to speak to them. And I'm the only one who showed up. And so they endorsed me unanimously. And so that's how it, it didn't really begin there because I had attended. Uh, meetings with Moore, state NAACP meetings in Ocala and Orlando, uh, so that uh, we were acquainted before that campaign, but I uh, always felt guilty that the feeling that uh, my campaign, his endorsement of it, uh, played a major part in getting him killed.
0: In the summer of 1964, the United States Congress had reached a stalemate in discussions about the proposed Civil Rights Act. It was the actions of ordinary people in St. Augustine, Florida, that led to the Civil Rights Act being passed into law. Barbara Vickers was a beautician in her late 20s in the summer of 1964 and was one of the everyday people who changed history.
1: Dr. Halen moved across the street, 8 Scott Street. Uh, This was Scott Street then. And um, I would go to the rallies and he was trying to get people to come and go different places. And I went one night to uh, First Baptist Church. Uh, Dr. King was there and um, Dr. Haley needed people to go on Sundays to the kneelings. And um, I had a beauty salon, so I didn't work on Sundays. And I said, well, that's something that I can do. So uh, Dr. King was, uh, in the pulpit, and he just looked around, and I guess I was excited, and he said, young lady, will you go? And I said, yes, and that started me, got me started.
0: Local dentist turned civil rights activist Dr. Robert B. Haling was a neighbor of Barbara Vickers, but it was the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. who inspired her to join the movement when he visited St. Augustine.
1: I wondered why did I say yes in the beginning, because I said, did I say yes? But um, I wanted to participate but I was afraid and um, I wanted a better life and I said the only way you, you get it done is to get out there and do it. So once I started, uh, the second Sunday wasn't so bad. I mean we couldn't get into churches. They would Sometimes they'd let you kneel and pray on the steps. Other times they wouldn't let you. And then some of the people were arrested when they went. So. It was nerve-wracking.
0: Barbara Vickers and her neighbors were thrust into the national spotlight in the summer of 1964. Peaceful protests such as lunch counter demonstrations and attempts to integrate local pools and beaches were met with increasing violence. On June 9th, just one month before the Civil Rights Act was passed, national activist Andrew Young was beaten during a march around the plaza in downtown St. Augustine.
1: He wasn't too far behind me, and we slowed up. And uh, the lieutenant said, nope, keep moving, keep moving. Do not stop, do not stop, keep moving. And when we got there, uh, they started throwing rocks. And uh, earlier that day, they put a truckload of rocks in the plaza. And uh, the people, the whites were in the plaza with the rocks and they was throwing it. So we went around the plaza. And those rocks, they didn't hit me that night, but it hit so many people they had to go to the hospital and they refused to wait on them here so they had to take them to Jacksonville. But um, I could feel head of rocks going by me, zoop, zoop. But I was lucky that night, I didn't um, But then it was a hedge just before you go into the plaza and we all knelt down behind that hedge for safety. Yeah, that was one of the worst nights for me, it was.
0: As the civil rights movement of the 1960s became a part of history, Barbara Vickers felt that the everyday people who had been on the front lines risking life and limb were not receiving proper recognition. She led the effort to have the St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Monument created.
1: That's why I was just, I don't know why I just thought about that monument morning, noon, and night. I thought about all of the ordinary people that I call the little people that participated and made the movement work. And if it hadn't been for those people, you, one person couldn't make it work. So they had no recognition of any those the people, the little people. And I worked you know, seven years, organized a group, And we worked to get that monument down in the plaza that uh, Brian Owens um, did a wonderful job on. And um, it's to recognize. That's why it's not Dr. King's figure. It's not the Dr. Halen figure. It's the ordinary people that no one can recognize. And it's for them.
4: The monument consists of four bronze busts, uh, shoulder to shoulder, in front of a relief, a curved relief sculpture that represents the plaza itself, the plaza in which a lot of the events took place, uh, the plaza in which the sculpture is now permanently installed. The four people depicted represent a a rough demographic of the people who were protesting at the time. A white college student, a black male in his mid-30s, an elderly black woman, perhaps in her mid-60s, and a teenage black girl. So that demographic was given to me as something I had to work with, and it, and it worked out fine. Uh, there's no way we could really tap our hat to all of the various people that came down, but uh, that's what I had to roll with. So the, the object for me was to, well, how do you do it? How do you sculpt, how do you sculpt something that is memorable and draws people. It's a fairly small monument as monuments go. How do I create something that will make people walk over and then want to examine it? So each of these four people depicted, four subjects I call them, are in a slightly different emotional state. And uh, as I said, they're shoulder to shoulder. The implication being that they're, they're part of a unit. And they are They're looking at something, they're responding to something, but you as the viewer, you don't know what that is. That's for you to fill in with your own imagination. So the sculpture is as much about what you don't see as what you do see.
0: The St. Augustine Foot Soldiers Monument has its back turned to the slave market where people were bought and sold as property and faces the building where lunch counter sit-ins took place at the Woolworths department store. The monument stands as an enduring testament to the power of everyday people to make history. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, find great books on Florida history and culture, read our Florida Frontiers blog, and much more. While you're there, join the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. The Orange Blossom Special was a luxury passenger train that came to Florida from New York between 1925 and 1953. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. Ben, railroads have had a significant impact on the development of Florida.
2: Yeah, that's right. Uh, For most of the the history of human habitation in Florida, waterways have really been the primary means of of transportation. Uh, Early Native Americans used uh, dugout canoes to transport uh, people and supplies throughout the peninsula. Um, But it really wasn't until the 19th century that a new technology, the uh, invention of the uh, steam-powered locomotive, um, that that really uh, shifted away from uh, the waterways as a primary means of transportation to the development of 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 railroads. Uh, When Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821, Uh, funds were quickly allocated for internal improvements, which uh, included the the construction of roads, uh, bridges, canals, but also railways. Uh, But unfortunately, it wasn't until 1836, when Florida was right in the middle of the Second Seminole War, uh, that the first true steam locomotive line was uh, in operation in Florida. And that was the Lake Wimico and St. Joseph Canal and Railroad Company. The entire line was was only eight miles long. Uh, It was a a five-foot-wide gauge line. And it ran from uh, St. Joseph's up towards the Apalachicola River. And the primary purpose was to transport cotton uh, down to the Gulf Coast, which it could then be transferred onto uh, ocean-going vessels and, and exported out of the, the state. Uh, it wasn't until 1845, Florida becomes a state. Um, we have a lot of uh, outside investment. People are, are really interested in developing Florida. Uh, and the first cross-Florida railway, which was the, called the Florida Railway, ran from Fernandina to Cedar Key on the Gulf Coast, was established, Uh, It was approximately 156 miles long, and at the time was the longest railroad in Florida until the Civil War. Uh, Of course, the Civil War uh, caused a lot of of problems for for, uh, this kind of improvement. A lot of the railroad construction stopped, and then the 1880s, when the population again began to grow, we see more and more private companies uh, coming in, and, and we have the Florida East Coast Railroad, uh, the Atlantic Coast Line, the, the Seaboard Airline, the, the big three in Florida right around the turn of the century, uh, kind of dominated transportation uh, up through the, the mid-period uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the 20th century.
0: Now, you have here a, a set of bound volumes of documents from railroad companies across the country, but it includes Florida as well.
2: Yes, that's right. What we're looking at today is uh, one volume in a set of uh, dozens uh, that covers a period from about 1872 up through 1932. And this is called the uh, Poor's Manual of Railroads of the United States. And these were first published in 1868 by a gentleman uh, named Henry Poor. Uh, and Henry Poor was a, a lawyer, was a, a railroad magnet in his own right up in, uh, up in Maine, and he decided, and he kind of saw the writing on the wall, he saw the development of the railroads and the importance of this new industry. So what he started doing, he developed this company to compile a comprehensive list of uh, detailed uh, information about every railroad in the United States, and he would publish this volume annually, again starting in 1868 um, all the way up through the mid 20th century here at the Florida Historical Society uh, Library. Of Florida history, we have not a complete set, but our set covers from 1872 to 1932. So there's this large uh, chunk that actually kind of helps us tell the story of, of this development, you know, because the railroad industry really was the, the dominating, you know, industry in Florida. It was the only way that uh, Florida's agricultural supplies, phosphate, uh, lumber, uh, citrus, how that got out of the state and how people came into the state. So it was both passenger and uh, freight rail that was so important. Uh, and if we look at, you know, just as an example of uh, one of the uh, railroad lines in Florida, this is the Jacksonville, Pensacola, and Mobile Railroad. It states here, the line uh, ran from Lake City, Florida to Chattahoochee, uh, gives us a total distance of 151 miles. Uh, it lists the president of the company, uh, the treasurer, the superintendent, all the way down to the freight uh, agent, uh, also gives addresses of where the uh, principal offices are, uh, tells us how many locomotive engines were owned by the company. I mean, incredibly you, know, you know, granular details that were important for investors. So people like Henry Flagler, before they uh, started investing in Florida, they probably referred to the Poor's Manual uh, and and got a sense of, you know, the the state's uh, internal improvement funds, uh, the amount of debt that the state owned, and all of this was compiled neatly into uh, into these Poor's volumes. So how do researchers today use railroad documents like these? Well, again, it's because of that granularity that they're so incredibly important. So, for instance, if if anyone is trying to look at large-scale uh, trends throughout Florida history, you know, from the late 19th century to the 20th century, if we're looking at the development of the state, um, we have to uh, look at the—and kind of produce this comprehensive analysis of how railroads are affecting uh, Florida's economy, because it was such a big part— and really left such a, a large footprint on Florida's history, uh, you really can't look at uh, any of, of that kind of large-scale uh, uh, research without referring to these Poor's manuals. So, uh, you know, having this complete volume is really important for research. It's, and a lot of them are available online uh, now as well, but uh, it's an important component of Florida's history, and it's good to have that, uh, that type of detail that would be very difficult to find uh, if uh, poors hadn't, uh, hadn't published these volumes. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is director of educational resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in COCO. This is Florida Frontiers. American Pharaoh is the latest of only 12 Triple Crown winners since 1919 and the first since 1978. Robert Casanello from RobertCasanello.com has this look at early horse racing in Florida.
5: Their culture and their interest in horse racing from the old colony and looking for land to grow cotton in the Upper South. They were also very big into horse racing and brought that part of their culture with them and developed tracks in and around uh, the North Florida area, the um, Pensacola area, Tallahassee.
6: That was Dr. Susan Hamburger from Pennsylvania State University. She spoke to me about early horse racing in Florida. She tells me what those races were like.
5: They were very busy keeping their culture going with only the landed gentry doing their cultural things and social things and part of that was the horse racing. They raced against each other. They didn't race against the lower classes. They didn't race against the slaves. They had slaves actually as their jockeys. But they were interested in maintaining their own status quo. They didn't have a lot of track meets like we have now where you meet for months at a time. It was a week back then, or maybe three or four days of the week once a year. So it wasn't this ongoing, very big thing. It was when they would bring in horses from the, the different areas of the northern Florida and have a race meet for a couple of days.
6: Dr. Hamburger told me about the betting system and the different types of horse racing.
5: People would bet person to person say, I want to bet $10 on this horse to win. And the other one says, okay, well, I'll bet $10 on the other horse to win instead. They, a lot of times it was match races. So you didn't have 10, 15 horses running in a race. You might have two in a match race, and they were also different kinds of races than what we're used to now. They would run for four miles at a time, or they would run in heats. They'd run four-mile heats, and they'd rest for an hour, and then same horses would run another four-mile heat, and the best two out of three would be declared the winner. So it was really grueling. It was not what you normally see these days where we run the horses for a mile, and then they rest for months. It was a very different kind of horse racing.
6: In the 1840s, horse racing died down due to criticism, but later picked back up.
5: The resurgence of interest picked up again after the Civil War. That's when it started moving uh, to Jacksonville, Orlando, and Tampa. There was gambling going on during this time, and, and each of the different class stratifications would bet among themselves. The uh, landed gentry were not betting with the peons, so to speak. They were not betting with the working class folks. They bet amongst themselves because to lose face with somebody who is not of your class was unheard of. You didn't gain any social status by betting or winning against somebody who was lower than you, and you certainly didn't want to lose to somebody who was lower caste than you. So it was very stratified.
6: Finally, Dr. Hamburger tells me that those familiar with horse racing today might not recognize the typical rituals and symbols to horse racing in the 19th century?
5: Back in the, in the early days, there were no starting gates. They didn't have even a starting tape where you would line up with a, a rope or something. The jockeys would be on the horses, and they were all hopped up and jumping around and, and anxious to get off. And it, was, it took some time to get them all lined up and ready to go. And then somebody would drop the flag, and they'd take off. A lot of times there were false starts, it was very chaotic. It wasn't as well organized as it is these days. They didn't have the same rituals with the call to the post, with the trumpet. They didn't have the colors, the numbers on the horse's saddlecloth. They didn't have the, the jockey's colors. It was whatever the jockey's were wearing at the time. So it, they knew their horses by the color of the horse and who was riding it. There, there weren't that many running at the same time. If you had maybe five or six horses, that was a lot in one race.
6: That was Dr. Susan Hamburger, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow the daily conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White.